Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question, something to consider, and that is this. Can you imagine the sound of God singing? What type of song might he sing? If God's word is so powerful that simply speaking brought the entire universe into existence, what would it sound like when God shouts for joy, when God sings in exaltation? John Piper says this, what would happen if God lifted up his voice and not only spoke but sang? Perhaps a new heaven and a new earth would be created. What do you hear when you imagine the voice of God singing? I hear the voice of Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with a kitten's purr. I hear the power of an East Coast hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. I hear the unimaginable roar of the sun 865,000 miles thick, 1,300,000 times bigger than earth and nothing but fire, 1 million degrees centigrade on the cooler surface of the corona, and I hear this unimaginable roar mingled with the tender, warm cracklings of logs in the living room of a cozy winter's night. What does it sound for God to sing? We will return to that question and hopefully get an answer to it a little later in our message this morning. But as you turn to Luke 15, you'll notice we are in a new chapter. It may seem amazing, but we are progressing through this book. And one of the things to note is that the chapter numbers are not inspired. When Luke wrote, he did not write verse 1, chapter 1. They were added hundreds of years later. The reason I point that out is you may think that in chapter 15, we're, we've got some new topic. And yet you will see that chapter 15 is very closely linked to chapter 14 and what came behind it. The entire chapter, all of chapter 15, is a marvelous, marvelous passage. One of the most beautiful, amazing passages of how we learn about who God is and what types of things make him sing and shout for joy. The passage, all of chapter 15, is one large unit drawing our attention to one singular issue. In it, we get three parables. That's, that's all that's in here. We have the parable of the lost sheep in verses 1, well, verses 4 through 7. The parable of the lost coin. The parable of what is commonly known of as the prodigal son. And all three of these parables give one main central point. They're, they're very similar. You'll notice in each parable, somebody has something. In the parable of the shepherd, you see in verse four, what man having a hundred sheep? In the parable of the lost coin, what woman having 10 silver coins. And in the parable of the prodigal son, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. So all three of the parables begin with someone possessing, having something, and then it is lost. Explicitly in the parable of the sheep and the coin, implicitly and obviously in the parable of the two sons. Then what is lost is found. Then there is rejoicing. 
All three parables reveal the searching, yearning, loving, rejoicing heart of God. Let me read a a quote. In the first two parables, the sheep and the coin do nothing to be found. Their recovery depends entirely on the initiative of the one who seeks them. That same determination is fundamental to the third parable as well. For apart from the father's waiting and seeking love, neither the younger son nor the elder would be rejoined or reconciled to the family. These three parables show God's heart, God's desire, God's attitude, and God's joy at the recovery of the lost. It's a wonderful passage we'll be diving into, but like I said, it is connected to what has come before. I'd like to begin by reading the first 10 verses in their whole, and then diving in as we look at God's great joy in repentant sinners. God's great joy in repentant sinners. Now, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now we'll be studying this morning the first two of the three parables in chapter 15, but I want you to notice the progression. Not only do they all have in common that somebody possesses, had something, somebody loses something, somebody finds something and there's rejoicing, but you'll, you'll notice the shift first from one sheep in a hundred to one coin in ten, to one of two sons. You notice the movement as it intensifies? One central point, God's heart, answering this charge. What brings this about is the Pharisees' charge, their complaint, their grumbling. And so we're going to look at this, the first two parables this morning, and then we'll probably take two or three weeks over the prodigal son to try to see what's going on there as we move through chapter 15. God's great joy in repentant sinners. But let's, let's dive in now by looking at the complaint that the Pharisees and scribes. This is, after all, what occasions the three parables and the rest of this chapter. They have a complaint. It's not a new one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So what's going on. Well, first, Luke ties 15.1 with 14.35. 
How did Jesus end his radical call to discipleship? Remember, you've got to have no greater love, and you've got to have no greater pleasure, and you've got to have no greater treasure. You need to count the cost. You need to renounce everything. It was a hard call to discipleship, and we looked at that. But he ends it, verse 35, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? How does 15.1 begin? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. See the connection? So Jesus lays out a radical, challenging, difficult call to discipleship. Pick up your cross. Love me more than any family member, more than any human relationship. Be willing to suffer. Renounce your possessions. Follow me, and here we see the tax collectors and the sinners are drawing near. They are hearing it. They're not repelled by this call. They're coming to him. In fact, Luke uses some hyperbole. He says all of them were. Now, surely not every single last one was, but this is a way of showing the dominance. You start to see that it is those people most aware of their sin, most aware of their need, who will most receive Christ's message as good news. They come. And how does our Savior respond? With a stern warning? With disapproval? With, well, I suppose. No, we get it out of the mouths of his adversaries. He receives and he eats with them. He welcomes them and he has table fellowship with them. Don't miss, don't miss the level of their accusation and their problem here. Now, they understood that Old Testament prophets would speak to sinful people. They understood that. Their their objection isn't that the sinners and the tax collectors were coming and listening to him. That that would be troublesome, but at least that would be in keeping with the prophetic line and pattern. Now, their objection is his welcoming of them, and even more his eating with them. Let me read a quote to help us understand the uh, significance of that. The combination of these two words connotes more than table hospitality with Torah defilers, radical though that was, The combination of these two terms designates the creation of fellowship. In receiving and eating with sinners, Jesus bound himself in community with them. That word for welcome is the same word Paul uses in Romans 16 about his fellow servant Phoebe, Phoebe, and he tells them, welcome her. Jesus is, is not simply teaching them and acknowledging them. He is, he is welcoming them in, as it were, putting his arms around them. He's eating at table with them. And the Pharisees might have a point from one perspective. I don't want you to stumble over what they say too much, and oh, those, those no good Pharisees. Are we not, after all, told in 2 John, everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That's God's word to us. False teachers, people from cults show up, you don't welcome them, you don't share a table with them, you don't have fellowship with them. That's that's what 2 John 1, 9 through 11 says, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So the Pharisees are seeing Jesus and By the term tax collectors, these are the Uncle Toms, these are the sellouts, they've betrayed their people, they've bought a tax franchise from Rome, and you use it to oppress and take advantage of their own countrymen, their own people, that is truly despicable. And the sinners, these are notorious sinners, 
prostitutes, adulterers, people known publicly as being sinful. And Jesus is, is eating with them and fellowshipping with them. How is he not participating in their deeds? How is he not giving approval to their wickedness? That, that's what they're saying. They're saying, we, we know you're not a prophet from God because you're, you're, you're eating with these people. You're, you're, you're having fellowship with them. You're establishing community with these people. Which is why it's again important to note the connection of the text. They would have something to their charge if Jesus was just hobnobbing with them apart from his call to repentance and discipleship. But as the text itself makes explicitly clear, there is nothing to their charge because these are not simply sinners, these are repentant sinners. These are people who have counted the cost, who are willing to pick up their cross, who love Christ more than they love their family, who have renounced what they have, and as such, they are welcomed. As such, they sup and eat with the Lord. That's crucial to understand. And the flow of the text makes it clear. He gives a hard call to discipleship. He ends with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. They come to hear. And twice in the first two parables we are told, look at verse seven, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So yes, these are tax collectors. Yes, these are sinners, but they are repentant tax collectors. And they are repentant sinners. And so Jesus gladly shares table fellowship with them. Verse 10 as well. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You can gladly sit down with a repentant false teacher who's, who's come to submission to Christ. Our Lord welcomes them, gladly sharing bread and meals with them. So that's their complaint, and they grumble, and they murmur, um, reminding us of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. There's grumbling, and they're stumbling over this. How can this man be a prophet if this man is hobnobbing and fellowshipping with and treating as equals, in a sense, accepting them at table? Now, I want you to note, as we move into point two, our Lord's kindness. Now, right here, he could just blast them, and, he, and he's done that before, hasn't he? You hypocrites. You whitewashed tombs, he could say. Who do you think you are? You think you're so clean and holy and these people are so wicked and corrupt? How dare you despise these image bearers of God? He doesn't do that at all. He does that elsewhere. He does it at other times. That, that, this, that could be a response he gives here. And he doesn't. What does he do? He tells them three stories. What's the point of telling these three stories? He wants to show them not by citing rules, not by citing law, but simply by showing them the self-evident beauty of God's heart towards these sinners. And I think there's an implicit invitation that they would come to share God's heart for these sinners, these tax collectors. So we move on to, to the parable of the lost sheep. He told them this parable, verse three. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country, Go after the one that is lost until he finds it, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost, just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus asks them a question. It's a parable, but he asks a question. This is a way of drawing them in. It's forcing them to give an answer internally, yes or no. 
You're forced to come to a judgment. Is it not the case that this is what a shepherd would do? Would you not, if you were a shepherd, do this? And they're, they're required, therefore, to, yes, I would, or no, I wouldn't. Jesus' story assumes the affirmative. Jesus' description assumes that what he's about to say is obvious, that they would say yes. Which, which man among you would not do this? And so we look at the parable of the lost sheep. Now, this shepherd is not a nomadic shepherd. We know that because he has a home he goes to at the end of the day. Notice, notice in verse um, 6, when he comes home. So this is a day shepherd. He, he leads the sheep out from the fold in the morning. He takes them out onto pastures. He grazes them, and then he comes back home at night and puts them away in the pen. And he's got 100 sheep, which is not a large flock by, by some standards. More than a single household would need it. These are his own sheep. That he owns, that he'd probably have some means. It's possible also that he's the hired one who takes out the village sheep. We don't know. He may have other people with him. Again, we don't know. That's not what's in view here. But the shepherd leaves his flock to find his lost sheep. That's the point. And, and notice, notice how suddenly and how um, there's almost a sense of urgency. Because that's the point of leaving them in open pasture. Once he notices he's missing one of his 99 sheep, he doesn't say, well, I'll get the others back home. I'll lock them up in the pen. And then if there's still some daylight left, I'll go back and look for the missing sheep. Now, the emphasis of leaving them in open pasture is as soon as he spots this one sheep of his that's gone, he's out looking for it. And he doesn't stop until he finds it. He leaves the 99 in open country and goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. Okay, so that's, that's the first assumption. And the assumption is the Pharisees would say, yeah, if I was a shepherd, that's what I'd do. I'd, I'd go look, find my lost sheep. I'm not gonna, we know the Pharisees love money, they love possessions. You're not gonna lose one of your sheep. You're gonna find it. That, that, this much is not controversial. Then he rejoices in finding it and carries it on his shoulders. The assumption is, what's going to happen when he finds it? Does he get to grumble, get mad at the sheep, maybe kick it? Stupid sheep. No, he rejoices, right? I mean, I might, I might do, no. Anyway, um, one of my mother's dogs ran away, and when we found it, I was not rejoicing. But um, She was. See, it was her dog, not mine. So there was joy on her part. Anyway, uh, and so the picture is of joy. This shepherd noticed the missing sheep. He dropped what he was doing. He found his sheep. He, and when he finds it, he rejoices. And now, ironically, the greatest work of his task is, is now before him because he's got to carry the sheep. When he was looking for the sheep, he wasn't carrying a sheep. But he's so rejoicing in finding his lost sheep that he doesn't grumble. He throws it on his shoulders, a picture of intimacy and care, and he carries it home. This may suggest there were other shepherds because it's possible he went and got the rest of the flock and went home. It's possible some other shepherd with him brought them home. We just see him going home. And what does he do when he gets home? Does he say, well, that was a long day. That was frustrating. He's still rejoicing. He's rejoicing when he finds the sheep. He's rejoicing when he throws the sheep on his shoulders. And when he gets home, having carried the sheep the whole way, it, it, that's not enough. He calls together his friends and his neighbors to celebrate. Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. That's, that's, that's the parable. And he's asking the Pharisees, is, is it not so? Is this not what would happen? And the assumption is, of course. Then here comes the startling and shocking news. Just so I tell you, there, is mo there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice with them, and then he gives them the application of his parable, which is this. There is more joy in heaven for one repentant sinner than over 99 righteous. Now what Jesus is doing here is he is granting without challenge the Pharisees' assumption about themselves. It's not the case that the Pharisees are 99 righteous who need no repentance. What he's saying is, let's, let's even grant your supposition that you're the good guys. Let's grant that you're the good guys. You don't need to repent. You're not dirty, filthy sinners. Let's grant that for the moment. Do you rejoice over the sheep that aren't lost or over the sheep that are found? That's, that's the point, what he's saying is, even if you are who you think you are, how do you think God feels when these people come to repentance and come to him? I mean, we, we know the message they've heard. We know that, that the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors are not showing up, telling stories about you know, the tricks they've turned or the extortion they've done. These are repentant, broken, renouncing all people. How, how do you think, he says, God, God's gonna feel about that? It's the same way the shepherd feels when he brings his sheep home on his shoulders. Even if you guys are who you think you are, do you not see how God's attitude would be one of joy and rejoicing and celebration over a lost sheep coming home? You see, they don't view these sinners and these tax collectors as having any value. You would understand the joy, he's saying, of something as small and of little value as a sheep. You understand throwing the party for that. One of these tax collectors and sinners comes to, to faith, repents, gets reconciled with God, it's only because you don't see them as having value. It's only because you don't care for them that you don't see this as a cause for joy. So he moves on to the parable of the coin. He tells him another story. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me! For I've found the coin that I'd lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so the second parable is similar to the first. There's a little difference here. We'll try to draw the distinction of, of, of what is added. But again, we have a peasant woman. We, we know this is a peasant woman for a couple of reasons. One, she only has 10 drachmas. That's the term for the coin. It's, it's roughly a day's wage. It's worth but a quarter of a shekel. And this is all she has. The parable doesn't work if she's got a big jar of drachmas elsewhere. So when it says she has 10, we're to understand she only has 10. And so I want you to think of what type of class economically someone is who only has 10 days, two weeks pay in their bank account. That's it. Whatever, whatever a day laborer, whatever a... a um, Someone working at an entry-level job would make in two weeks, two-week paycheck. That's what she's got. That's all she has. It's a peasant woman. She's not rich. She's not wealthy. Another reason suggesting this is the case is unless she's searching at night, the turning on of the lamp indicates her house doesn't have windows. Now, maybe she is searching at night, in which case it's odd that at night she calls all her friends together. The other possibility is she's living in a small one-room mud hut type of thing, and so she needs to light a lamp to clean her house. Again, suggesting this is a poor, or at least you know, a meager, humble peasant woman, right? And so again, the story follows the same plot line. She has 10 silver coins, she loses one. What is she gonna do? She searches diligently 
until she finds it. And, and here, and this is the contrast, in the first story what we see is the concern, the intimacy, the care. The shepherd leaves the flock and he goes, as soon as he notices there's a sheep missing, he carries it on his shoulders. It's an intimate picture. Here, we're seeing the, the work, the effort, the diligent search, as Jesus doesn't just say she looks for it, but tells us how. She lights the lamp, she sweets the house, and searches diligently. She doesn't just scatter her eyes. This is what my kids do. You say, you can go find your towel, go find the toy. And then I think my kids, most of the time, is what they do. Don't see it. Can't find it. Right? You know what I'm talking about? No. She's doing a diligent search. She's doing a diligent search. Lighting the lamp, sweeping the floor, cleaning the house. And just imagine how diligently you would search if 10% of your retirement savings, your money in the bank, disappeared. How many phone calls would you be making to the bank? What would you be doing looking for it? This, this, of course you'd make a diligent search. And again, Jesus is assuming the Pharisees are all nodding. They're probably not pleased you know, to, to be imagining what they'd do if they were shepherds and what they'd be doing if, if they were a woman with 10 coins, what woman. But they agree, the basic principle, of course, of course that's what you're gonna do. You lose 10% of your wealth, you're gonna find it. You're gonna find that coin, right? You're gonna look for it. You're gonna turn your house upside down if you have to. It's gonna get found. And when she finds it, what happens? She calls her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Imagine if you thought you'd lost 10% of your wealth, 10% of your property, your money, your everything, and then you found out it was a clerical error, the bank sent you a note, oops, sorry, our mistake. You, you'd be talking about that. You would tell people. You would celebrate. And that's what goes on here. And again, Jesus gives the shocking application. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, in the first parable, what we're to see is the contrast, the greater joy. More joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people. Here, we're just looking at the joy itself. And I love the way Jesus phrases this. Literally, let me look at my thing here. Um, literally, joy comes into being in the presence of the angels of God on one sinner who repents, which I think is a really, really beautiful way of picturing God becoming joyful because if it's, not the, it's not the angels' joy. It's in their presence. It's before their face. Who is in the presence of the angels? God. And so the picture here is in the, the very center of the throne room of God, surrounded by angels, covering their eyes, saying, holy, 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 all of a sudden, joy comes into being for one sinner who repents. That's the picture. God is likened himself to this peasant woman who calls her friends, by extension, the friends would be the angels, Rejoicing over one sinner who repents. It's absolutely scandalous. God is not ashamed to say, I'm like a peasant woman who lost a coin and searches high and low for it. And then I celebrate and I call my friends when I find it. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. So I want to just make four points of application, four so what's from this as we've walked through. That's walking through the text. Four points. One. 
Jesus, in giving these parables, is answering their objection. Why? Why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he welcome them? Why does he have table fellowship with them? Well, Jesus welcomes repentant sinners because God does. Because God does. That's the simplicity of his answer. There's more to be learned here, but that's the essence of his answer. I am reflecting, he says, the very heart and attitude of God. I welcome them because God welcomes them. I eat at table with them because God is willing to eat at table with them. I rejoice because he rejoices. I'm on God's mission. And it's fully in keeping with God's mission. And again, this is not some new teaching that Jesus drops on the Pharisees. This is throughout the Old Testament. We'll look at some texts on this point. But Jesus welcomes repentant sinners because God does. I want to read another Piper quote to you. Jesus says, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Repentance is in the parable. But what we see at the table is Jesus receiving sinners and eating with them. Jesus is the seeking heart of God going out after sinners and winning our repentance. We must repent, but he has not left us alone in this. He has taken bold initiative to reach us and change us. This message today, and you being here is one of them. It is no accident. God is here in this word and is speaking, and his word is this. Come to the table. Repent. Open your eyes and see that the banquet of being with Jesus is worth the cost of following Jesus. Jesus welcomes repentant sinners because God does. Because God does. Secondly, God urgently and diligently seeks the lost because he loves them, because they are valuable to him. God urgently and diligently seeks the lost because he loves them and because they are valuable to him. That is the inescapable point of these parables, and that's where it starts to become scandalous. God is saying, I am like, that's that's what you get from in the same way or just so. There is something about a shepherd searching for a sheep and finding it and rejoicing that is like God. Now that's not a scandalous. We've got plenty of Old Testament antecedent passages about God being a shepherd. Let me read you one or two of them. Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. God there pictures himself as a shepherd carrying his flock. Or, uh, in Ezekiel 34, God searching for his flock. Turn, turn to Ezekiel 34, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Again, we, what Jesus is revealing is nothing new. He's not telling them anything fundamentally new about God's heart. And as those who have mastered the Old Testament law, this should not come as a surprise. 
these would-be shepherds of Israel, these ones standing in the gap, holding up for the law. Have they not read the law? Have they not read Ezekiel 34? Love this chapter. Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak, you have not strengthened. The sick, you have not healed. The injured, you have not bound up. The strayed, you have not brought back. And the lost, you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. Now notice God's heart come out. You'll notice it in the emphatic pronouns, the I, I, myself's. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered and they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord thus says the Lord God behold I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand Put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search out my sheep and will seek for them. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep and has been scattered, so I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There shall, they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I'll make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. That, that is God's heart. Notice the emphatic, passionate nature. I, I myself, how angry God is with would-be shepherds who don't care for the flock and how passionate he is about seeking, restoring, carrying, healing, feeding, comforting his flock. And so Jesus gives them this parable of a shepherd and he says, you'd have more compassion for lost sheep than you do for these image bearers of God, fellow countrymen and Israelites. God urgently seeks the lost because he loves them and because they are valuable to him and because they are valuable to him. And that's the other amazing thing. God is not ashamed to liken himself to a shepherd. Well, there's nothing new there, right? That's an Old Testament picture for God. We've just seen it. He's also willing to liken himself 
to a peasant woman who's just lost her life savings, searching high and low for the lost coin. You search for the lost coin because it has value, right? So God says that you can learn something about me from that. I'm sort of like that. It's amazing. God is not ashamed to say, that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm like when, when I'm searching for my lost ones. And the joy that that peasant woman has upon finding her coin, that's kind of like my joy. It's kind of like my joy in heaven. God urgently and diligently seeks the lost because he loves them and because they are valuable to him. Which, is, of course, is the, the, the difference between him and the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees have no love for these people. The Pharisees see nothing valuable in these people. God does. Jesus does. They don't. But again, Jesus is being gentle here. He's showing them. You see, this is what it's like. This is what God is like. Okay, third point. Probably the most remarkable one yet. God celebrates over the repentance of a sinner. Notice the specificity and individuality here. In other passages, we talk about God's love for his people in whole, right? Or Christ's love. In Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ died for his whole church. But here, specificity and individuality is unmistakable. Verse um, 7, more joy in heaven over one sinner. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner. One sinner. Just one. Any old one. Be they a tax collector, prostitute, adulterer, you name it. One sinner who repents and God celebrates. And this is where we start trying to answer our question. What is it like for God to sing? God to shout for joy. That's what he's comparing himself to here. That's what he's revealing about himself here. Let me read another quote from Piper. I just find John Piper striking these notes of God's joy over his people uh, like nobody else I've read. We must banish from our minds forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom as though Christ found some loophole in the law and did some fancy plea bargaining and squeaked us by the judge. No way! God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitutionary sacrifice we trust him, God welcomes us with bells on. He puts a ring on our finger, kills the fatted calf, throws a party, shouts a shout that shakes the ends of creation and leads in festal dance. Now some of those pictures he's getting from the parable of the prodigal son, which we will look at next week, but that's all true. God is not ashamed to show his joy and reveal his joy this way. And we might be tempted, especially when we struggle with God's sovereignty and God's omniscience, to begin to imagine him like some sort of cold supercomputer, dispassionately declaring his will, doing his thing. That's not the God revealed in the Bible. If, if these parables mean anything, joy, rejoicing, and a joy and rejoicing. When God celebrates, it is not sufficient for him to celebrate on his own. In both parables, others are brought in, right? In other words, the joy that is overflowing in the members of the Trinity 
it would be unfitting and insufficient for them to rejoice on their own. There needs to be, I mean, that's the nature of joy, right? Joy bubbles over and overflows. When, when you see something wonderful, don't you want to talk to somebody about it? When you've seen a great movie, I, I know I do. If I see a great movie, I want to talk to somebody about it. When you, when you see a great sports game, you want to talk about it the next day. Part of the joy of the event is in sharing it with somebody else. And God is saying in the same way, his joy over one sinner who repents is so great, it can't be contained within himself. He calls the angels. He celebrates. I want to read. Turn to Zephaniah. If you, if you can't, turn, turn to Zephaniah. It's worth turning to. Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets. We're going to try to answer our question. What makes God sing? Zephaniah 3, 17. Because again, Jesus is not teaching anything new. The Old Testament did not reveal. He's bringing it to a point. He's reminding them of it. But this is no new teaching. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What makes God sing? His joy over his redeemed ones. And it's not just any old singing. It's loud singing. Imagine that, God singing loudly. (laughs) I can't. I marvel at this type of news. I marvel at this type of proclamation that God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Or listen to Isaiah 62, four through five. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, his delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. Your land shall be married, and as for your young man, as a young man marries a woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And here the picture has changed from a party to a wedding night. As a bridegroom who's just taken his bride rejoices, you've seen the glow on the face of the couple as they leave the wedding reception, right? As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I suggest we, we cannot overstate God's joy, God's delight, God's celebration in one sinner who repents. One. Not just the church, just one. (laughs) Amazing, amazing passages. This brings us then to the final point. Oh no, we've got one more passage I want to read on that, sorry. Jeremiah 32, This, this this is... 
There's so many passages about God's love for his people. I gotta read one more, one more. Okay, Jeremiah 32, 39 to 41. You don't need to turn there if you don't want to. I'll, I'll just read it for you. I will give them one heart. It's describing the new covenant here, okay? And Jeremiah is describing the new covenant by which we are saved, which if you are in Christ, you are participant in. So if you're in the new covenant, this is God's heart to you. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I'll plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God is going to rejoice and delight in his people with all his heart and all his soul. Again, I don't think we can overstate this. So now, we'll turn to our final point, which is this. God invites us to share in his joy. God invites us to share in his joy. This gets back to the whole purpose of what Jesus is doing here. The Pharisees grumble. What is he doing? He's welcoming and he's eating with sinners. And Jesus, let me tell you about my father. Let me tell you how he feels about them when they come in repentance. Let me tell you how he responds. And there's an implicit invitation that they too would share this perspective that they might see the beauty in this, that they might see what is wonder, that they might share in the celebration as well. That's part of the reason why the shepherd is seen as calling his friends. It's not just the father's joy, it's the joy of the father and all who are his friends and all who are his neighbors. Which means, of course, the Pharisees at this moment are not God's friends or God's neighbors because they're not rejoicing with him, but they're invited to. Jesus is, his disciples are, One of the characteristics of God's children, God's family, is they share his joy, do they not? And so God here is welcoming us, inviting us to share in his joy. This is, listen to Apostle Paul's words beginning Colossians chapter one. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Paul just says, man, I've been so thankful. I have not stopped giving thanks since I heard of your faith. Doesn't that echo God's heart? I heard a sinner repented and I've just been thanking God and rejoicing, Paul says, ever since then. Philippians 1.18, Paul's in jail. He learns that some are preaching Christ simply to make him look bad, simply to make it worse for him. Does he resent that? Does he begrudge that? Philippians 1.18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says, I don't care what they're doing it for what reasons. I don't care if they're trying to make it worse for me. Christ is preached. Sinners will repent and get converted. I'm rejoicing. Turn, turn finally to 2 Corinthians 5. See, we, we share in God's joy when we rejoice over the repentance of a sinner. It's one of the reasons why we, we like to have baptism services with the whole church here. 
because we want to hear about how God brought a sinner to repentance. We want to hear a testimony of faith. We want to rejoice. There is a party going on in heaven when one sinner turns to Christ. But we can also share in God's joy, not by rejoicing in the repentance of sinners, but by sharing in the work, the joyful work of calling sinners to repentance. Listen to these amazing words in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 16, oh, 17, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Now, we, we use that phrase for all sorts of things. The newness of being a new creation is simply, we'll see, a new way of looking at everything and a new focus and intent on life. And it has to do with God's great purpose in reconciling himself with sinners. That's the sense in which all things are new. I used to be excited about this. I used to be excited about that. I used to care about this. I used to care about that. Now I'm single-focused. Anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, not just Paul here, by the way, us, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against themselves, against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So there's a message of reconciliation, there's a ministry of reconciliation, there's a word of reconciliation. Therefore, we, again, not just Paul, we are ambassadors for Christ. What happens when we do this? God making his appeal through us. We implore on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can share in God's joy in this work. We can share in the joy when we hear of others coming to faith. Our heart should leap for joy sharing in God's joy, and we can share in God's joy by sharing in this work. <laughs> by sharing in this work. Jesus identifies himself. Why did Jesus come? He tells us a little later in Luke, Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. Jesus is that shepherd searching for his flock. Jesus is God looking for his lost coin. And Jesus is revealing to the Pharisees and the scribes, this, this is the God who you claim to serve. This is his heart. This is what makes him sing and shout and throw a party and a celebration. One sinner, one sinner, repenting and coming to faith. Well, it would be remiss of me to end this morning without considering that there may be even cause for a celebration in heaven this morning yet. There might be someone here who doesn't know Christ. And I just would ask you to consider that even in this act this morning, as God's word is proclaimed, God is inviting you to his table. He's inviting you to eat with him. He's inviting you to come. His message this morning, to quote Piper, is this. Come to the table, repent. Open your eyes. 
And see that the banquet of being with Christ is worth the cost of following Jesus. Jesus told the Pharisees, because those originally invited to God's banquet didn't want to come, he will invite the lowest of the low, the lame, the blind, the sinners, the tax collectors, people like you and me. He'll invite us. And, and the, the, the qualifications for coming are non-negotiable. Jesus was clear about that. We looked at that over the last few weeks. You come to him empty-handed. You come to him with no greater love. You come to him with no greater desire. But if you will come, you will find a God and a Savior who will welcome you, who will throw you on his shoulders, who will rejoice over you and gather the angels of heaven to celebrate your turning to him. It's free. You just have to want him more than you want the things of this world. Jesus invites us to share in that joy. Jesus calls us to that table. Let's, let's close in prayer. If you don't know Christ, if you've never come to... If this is all new things for you, please talk to me or one of the elders. I would love, I would rejoice to have the opportunity to talk to you. I want you to understand just how much God longs for your foundness. He's at work searching for his coin and his sheep even now. Let's pray. Lord God, we just find it staggering, staggering that the terms of your love, your joy, your passion for us. Um, It is not because we are lovely that you love us. It is not because we are valuable inherently that you value us. It's a reflection of your value, that you would love us, your enemies, that you would send your son to die for us, that he would pay the penalty of our sin making possible the peace and the reconciliation that you now so strongly desire. Oh, Lord God, let let no one here turn up their heart or their eyes to this message. Let no one here stumble over Christ's call, treasuring the things of this world more than reconciliation with you. And let those of us who have come to know you by faith revel in Delight in your delight of us in redeeming us and our fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.